can Let's you do air it. guitar? Can you air guitar? Mm-hmm. No, he just what the hell? Don't <laughs> ask him. He could probably play his real guitar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Bo, are, are you any good at Guitar Hero? Because because like I I think if you could play real guitar, you should be real good at Guitar Hero, right? You no, know, I actually used to play Mean Guitar Hero back in the day. <laughs> yeah, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. I haven't. We can light up Dragon Force through the fire and the flames. Just yep. just start there. So we got Rob join. Hey, Rob. Well, Bo, Bo made. So I uh. Yeah, Bo's here. Jesus Christ, dude. I know, I know. <laughs> right? After you told me all the stuff that's going on with your life right now. Like, <laughs> I just told John the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to call you after this because, you know, whenever you're just like, dude, kids. And then Ralph is like, man, there's a lot going on in your life. I'm like, I don't know. It's, it's like multiple it's, small it's children. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the main thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully my audio and my video is working because I found this neat trick at my house to kind of help with the internet it basically involves me hardwiring my system to the good router and then giving my kids and my family the crap cell phone router and then i disconnect the regular wi-fi to the rest of the house so that's and, and that seems pretty, to work pretty, pretty well. intense it's, i actually read a uh, arts technica article just recently about a guy who started his own isp because of uh the situation that you're in like there just wasn't any I'm, good internet nearby so he started his own and paid for someone you know to wire fiber to his house and then he started selling it to other people like that was his whole plan and uh yeah yeah everyone's got like gig now i'm neighborhood i'm close to doing that but i'm not gonna do the part where i sell it to other people Mm. (laughs) i'm close to just you know setting up a tower and pulling in my own internet and just doing that. Well, I, Somebody's I like, can dude, see that's going to be like $10,000. I'm like, worth it. I can see you coming in at like five frames <laughs> a second right now. Yeah, you are a little choppy. But he sounds what the Yeah, the audio's there, though. The audio as long great. as I sound good. Yeah. You sound? Let me but kill my video. Didn't I'm you buy, but John, didn't you buy land to be able to have a better like internet signal? I did. Yeah, so... It bounces from my house to the top of the hill up on that land, and then it bounces over to another house that's on a higher hill, and then it bounces off that house all the way over to Terry Peak, which is a ski area that's something like five miles away, and that's all microwave that it's bouncing through, and I get 10 megabits per second. The other thing I've learned with Discord is I've learned that the longer I'm on air, the more choppy it gets. Periodically, I have to shut off my video. And then turn my video back on, and it, mm. it's a little bit better. But ah, the old IT just, trick. Turn it off. Turn it back on. Do you have LTE up there? So that's the crap internet for my house. We do have LTE. So on the top of the hill, I have another. It's just standard eight hundred two eleven jump. That's uh, to a router on the top of the hill that's basically pointing down. That is LTE. And LTE is great. I have like six, seven megabits download. It's awesome for, for a lot of things like kids stream movies and do all that shit there. It's upload is abysmal. Yeah, that's basically what's what's going on. So um, what is like your threat vector for wild animals for all that? It, it, it's <laughs> funny that you mentioned that because I have literally had deer that. So all of my crap is in a beehive uh, and I put it in the beehive. For a simple reason that whenever it was just in a regular box, I'd have people ATV through my prop. They'd find this box with a bunch of like satellite dishes on it. And they're like, what's that, Cletus? And then they'd be like opening it up and like, oh, what's this? This is funky. What happens if I push this button? And they would literally destroy my internet. So I put it all in a beehive. 
So now no one ever goes into the beehive because, I mean, <laughs> come on, who wants to who wants to mess with bees, right? It's, I mean, it's a reverse honeypot. Nicholas Cage, Wicker Man. It is a reverse <laughs> honeypot. So, <laughs> so, but uh, I have had deer uh, hit the box and knock it over. So now I have it like these big boulders on top of it. And it's like reinforced. I got these like, eight foot posts driven down. It's going to be a bear knocking it down. My, my first thought would have been bury a hole concrete it in right like put it underground and then you know whatever like the tower the antenna pieces that, that's what i would like blend no in. Like, no in. i'm not gonna hold i'm not gonna hoth my system in the middle of winter where all of a sudden i need to go in and reset a router and it's buried under like three feet of snow um, it's not you know that's i've already got to uh, deal with enough of that garbage so are we ready to kick this thing off ryan we, we've yeah, been we're live ready. for like eight minutes well we got to kick off the music though all right here we go we did it's okay. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> I've heard this song. Coming to you live from the No Bandwidth Studios. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, technically, like, yeah, that's <laughs> that's, that's not a false statement. <laughs> I like I like Bo's description of why he got into electronic music. He's like, I can sit with an iPad. And I, I can, with the notebook, and I can do it when my kids are hitting me on the head with toys. And, you know, it's a lot easier basically to deal with it than that. Yeah. So, well, everybody, in case you didn't notice, we have Bo Bullock, our daft hack on the show today. Um, he's decided to join us. We're also joined by Banjo Crashland. We have Ryan, the shootist. We have Mubix. Uh, we also have Ralph. So, we've got a good team of people hanging out. Um, Ralph's rack looks a little darker than normal i don't know if he has some of his 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 servers shut off but i don't know what's going on <laughs> there it's, <laughs> and we're, it's dark that's it actually i have more of them turned on and you know it's that time of year yeah it, it's, it's, it's cold heat. it's cold outside saving electricity yeah and because like i had family that was worried about me they're like dude with the inauguration and everything come up it's going to be like civil war i'm in my undisclosed location basement uh, mm-hmm. with no bandwidth whatsoever. So that's why I'm a little bit choppier than normal. <laughs> I see um, <laughs> yeah, so what I want to do is I first want to talk about this story at the register. Malwarebyte says it's Office 365 Azure tenancies, um, tenancies uh, have been breached, insists its tools are still safe to use, which I love. They're like, no, 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 it, it, we're not a solar wind. Please, federal government, don't ban us from absolutely everything. Um, but this gets into kind of a bigger problem in the industry as a whole, where this this whole idea that we've been talking about for weeks now of moving everything to the cloud opens up entirely different and new attack surfaces. And this particular article, it seems like they don't quite know or they haven't released, released exactly how they have been compromised. But it's interesting because it's not the same attack vector that I think that we're used to. And I wanted to bring Bo on because Bo has a class on breaching cloud perimeters uh, that we teach at Wild West Hack and Fest. And I wanted to get Bo's opinion on this story. So Bo, what, what were your thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah. so this one's pretty interesting. Um, so this this technique of, of using, utilizing a service principle within an Azure tenancy is actually something I, I talk about in my class. So it's like really, really interesting to me to see this actually used in the wild. Um, basically, like w- what they said, at least, is that in our particular instance, the threat actor added a self-signed certificate with credentials to the service principal account. And from there, they can authenticate using the key to, and make API calls. So, so the thing is, is like, 
Um, within Azure, you've got users and you've also got these service principles, which are effectively like applications, but they're also user accounts that can do things in, in the context of Azure. So um, what, what I think, I mean, based off of what they said here that I, that I kind of assume happened is that maybe somebody got password sprayed um, and, and then that, that account got utilized to pivot to a service principle. Um, or uh, so, so the thing with service principles is like, you know, it, the thing is crazy. And then that I think that I always think is kind of mind blowing is that if you, if you have an Office 365 uh, install, by default, you've got over like 200 service principles and you don't even like use like half of them most of the time, but they're there. Um, and every single one of them has a set of credentials that you can change if you're an administrator with an Azure. So um, think, think of it this way, like, you know, if you have an Azure admin, um, who wants to, for some reason, log in as one of these service principles, they could change the password to something weak. You know, they could totally make it whatever they want. Um, so, you know, from the context of maybe getting access to a lower level account and then enumerating those service principles and then maybe spraying those service principles, that, that's a potential vector um, here. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I thought, it was, I thought it was really interesting. The other thing that I think is interesting is the, the, um, there's usually a leg. So if we go back to Mail Sniper, right? Um, you released Mail Sniper, and I think we immediately talked to various law enforcement agencies that we knew were actually vulnerable to that um, before you released it. And then it, it kind of went, I, Bo, how long was it before they actually got us on the phone? And they were basically like, look, we're seeing lots of attacks. Can you describe this to us? I think it was a year after. Yeah, you it was at least Mail a Sniper. year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And with a lot of these attacks, I, I think a lot of attackers, they go for that low-hanging fruit, you know, standard password spraying attacks, capturing two-factor authentication credentials, SIM cloning, those types of things. Mm-hmm. This seems to me to be a fairly advanced attack fairly early in kind of that attack hype cycle. And, and I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, so the interesting thing is that I, I, I think that it's like service principles in general aren't really looked at much yet um, in terms of like the attack vector. Um, because there's there's kind of a relatively um, it's kind of a relatively new thing in terms of uh, like privilege escalation and, and what you would actually do with that account. Um, so for example, like from a privilege escalation perspective, um, Dirk Jan Mal- Malima actually did some research and published a blog post about utilizing an application administrator um, to to change the password of a service principle. So so the thing is like application administrators in Azure cannot create user accounts. Okay, like they can't go create new user accounts. They can't change permissions on user accounts. But what they can do is they can change passwords of service principles. And sometimes service principles have that ability to create user accounts. So uh, it's effectively like a privilege escalation in, in that context. Because, you know, if you, have, if you happen to spray like an application admin account um, and then use that application admin account to change the password of a service principle that has more privileges than you, um, that's, that's your privilege escalation right there. So, yeah, it's kind of an interesting vector. So is this a misconfiguration problem or is this just not utilizing all all your tools or all your assets properly? Um, I think it depends on on what exactly happened here. I mean, from what they said, uh, somebody changed the or they they added a self-signed certificate for a service principle. So somebody had the ability to add credentials to a service principle. So that's what makes me think that somebody probably sprayed an application admin or somebody else who had the ability Mm -hmm. to set that uh, certificate. Um, so that in that case, it is a a, a weak password issue, right? Yeah, so, maybe. But that, yeah, go ahead, Rob. Um, <clears throat> so application admins is that just a um, a normal user? You, like, if 
if you and I are on the same uh, Azure cloud instance or whatever, you can have application admin privileges. Is that like, or is that? It's a, it's a um, role. Is that within, a, it's like a group? Adver. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So similar to like how you have um, like owner accounts over subscription or user access administrators, um, you have reader level access, you have all these different permission levels. Um, the, the application administrator is a specific one that is the specific to uh, service principles and applications. So it's not it's not a it's not a I'm administrator over this one application. It's a group of like domain admin like I'm um I'm admin over every application. Exactly. Yep. Okay. So if one someone wanted to audit their system or just to see if they have this, what what would they look for? Is there anything to look for? What tools could um, they use? That's yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, I think that what I would do is I would probably first uh, try to identify what service principles are uh, or, or were created prior to um, any sort of customization within your Azure tenant. So like I said, like with O365, you've got like 200 that gets spun up by default. So if the day you signed up for O365, you have all these other ones. Um, you can use something like Road Tools from Dirk Jan as well to go and enumerate all your service principles and then look for any sort of customized service principles that have been added after the fact. Um, and then um, I, I imagine there's probably logs, uh, you know, for the, for the changing of passwords, adding of certificates, that kind of stuff um, to, to service principles as well. So I've got a question. Has anybody had any experience with uh, Sparrow from CISA? Mm-mm. Okay, so it'd be, it'd be interesting. I, 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 this is one of those tools that's interesting to me. Is CISA released a tool specifically to help detect Azure and Office 365 compromised accounts? Um, it's called Sparrow. It's a PowerShell script. Uh, they released it, I think, last week. And what you basically do is you run it against your Azure environment, and it checks for some of these types of attacks. And I was just wondering if anyone had ever had an had a chance to actually run it. Um, on their actual Azure or Office 365 um, environment yet to see if it actually detects these types of attacks. Because I think that, that there's a couple of things, right? Um, we're looking at the attack surface. Uh, and Bo, I think you would agree that a lot of people are completely unaware of the new attack surface that exists within cloud environments. And then, you know, even from the defensive perspective, there's a ton of organizations that we go after and a lot of defensive things they could have enabled are either disabled by default or they've had them and then they shut them off. And then finally, defensive and forensics and IR tooling, there's a ton of vendors out there that are like, yeah, we help secure your cloud assets. But they all seem to be garbage. Like They're like, oh, yeah, we checked to see if you have any insecure S3 buckets. So one of the other big problems is... Uh, a lot of the actual like um, in-depth logging that you would want to get from Azure, you have to pay more to get. True. <laughs> now, so. it, it's interesting. DRock has worked on a script, so they shut it off. And this is something I'm sure Microsoft is going to change. Uh, but DRock discovered that a lot of those security features and logs and things, they shut it off so you can't access it via the GUI, but they're still exposed whenever you access like Azure like uh, CLI, and you can turn it on. Um, without being in that upper tier. So I'm sure that Microsoft will fix that problem relatively <laughs> shortly, I'm sure. So, so, uh, so any, anything else on this story, folks, before we move on? I find it interesting just in that first two paragraphs um, that they say that it's the SolarWinds uh, threat actor, but it, they didn't use, they're not using SolarWinds, so they're not sure how it, they got the privileges. 
But do you ever wonder if that's kind of like the the APT? Like when it, whenever it first came out, anybody that got hacked, anybody at all, they came out and they said, well, we were hacked by the advanced persistent threat. We were targeted by the Chinese. It became the boogeyman that was underneath the bed of every single security breach that happened. Yep. So like this one, I almost wonder if they're like, this must have been the same people that did Solar Winds. Well, I think um, they said in there, even though there's uh, what, very little of it. I think they said in there that Microsoft informed them of this, right? So they were they were told by Microsoft that this happened. Uh, okay. Yeah. Weird. I wonder if if that's a service they provide to every customer. <laughs> yeah, so it says the attack so. was spotted because of suspicious activity reported by Microsoft Security Response Center. Yeah. So, so I know that which, Amazon. Let's be. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. We got to back up on that for just a couple of seconds because we've pen tested a lot of companies, uh, Azure and Office 365, and it seems to me uh, that Microsoft is about two weeks behind our attack. Like you know, we'll we'll launch the attack, and then Microsoft will contact our customers and say, "Hey, we detected this attack against your organization two weeks ago." While we're like delivering the final report, um, I know that they're getting a little bit better, but that but that line that you just said, Bo, that scares the hell out of me. <laughs> um, if, if Microsoft is who detected this, it's bad. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, was it six months now? Is that, was it six months? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm just throwing a number out there. Like, how long was this? And that, that doesn't, you know, I'm not trying to kick them down. I'm just, you're, you know, you brought up the point about, you know, being two weeks after, you know, you had already launched the attack. So, um, you know, maybe they do report on it. It just, they're kind of like, hey, it's really bad, guys. You should fix this. We, we got, you know, yeah. alert. A lot of customers. Yeah. At least, at least they made some falls. Um, so, Ryan, what's the next story you have? We have solar winds. Oh my god! <laughs> so I, I wanted to bring this story up because whenever I'm reading this story, you know they talk about cobalt strike, and then they the the initial C2 payload was HTTP, and then now with the raindrop variant, um, it switches over to a non-HTT base command and control server, and and the reason why I wanted to bring this up is. Do you think that maybe as an industry, we might be a little bit too tied up in actually detecting and naming the individual tools that the attackers are using? And maybe, just maybe, it's not as important as some organizations make it out to be. The name? Uh, so naming yeah. helps. Naming no, no, helps not the name. Not the name. I'm talking about the okay. like the specific tools. Like There seems to be this huge push of, oh my God, we found a completely different toolkit that we're calling raindrop now and they get completely tied up into this new backdoor this new variant of this backdoor uh that they discovered and kind of my the reason why this bothers me is people believe in the industry that an attacker is going to find a toolkit and then they're going to use that toolkit continuously and there's some truth to that they will continue to use that toolkit right up into the point that that toolkit does not work on a specific organization and then they're going to switch their implants. They're going to switch their tools to meet that organization. And, and my theory, and I want to get all of you all's opinion on this, is we get so tied up in saying that this APT group uses this toolkit. Like they'll say, we, they use Cobalt Strike. Where Cobalt Strike is so modifiable and so changeable that that, that almost becomes meaningless at, at some point. And instead, as an industry, we should stop focusing on like, okay, what's the name of the back door that they used? Because um, for years it was poison ivy, and they're like, "Well, we got to detect poison ivy." Okay, well, what happens whenever they switch to various like ninety-five different variants of meterpreter? 
that they're utilizing. So I, I, once again, this seems to me like this is a story that honestly shouldn't be too much of a story um, because it shouldn't be about the damn tool that they put on your environment. It's kind of like the open source tool development dilemma where Marcello releases something like Silent Trinity and then you have FireEye that says, well, Marcello, you're a bad person because you released a tool and that's going to make the attacker's lives easier. There's no shortage of tools and there's no shortage of the ability to actually create new tools. So that's why I put this particular story in. That's there's a lot to unpack with what you said. Like, um, <laughs> start start so, wherever you want, man. <laughs> so I, I am curious on what they mean by non HTTP. Like, is it is it UDP? Is it um, another just straight TCP? Uh, I didn't see anywhere. Yes. I was reading just, through it. Rob, it was pretty clear. It was non HTTP. Oh, <laughs> any, any, anything <laughs> not. Gotcha. Sorry, I apologize <laughs> for not understanding that. There are 65,536 ports. And of those ports, there's a whole bunch of freaking protocols. It just means one of them. <laughs> Fantastic. Helpful. Yeah. Super helpful. Um, oh, it's configured to use network pipes in SMB? Like over oh. the internet? SMB over the internet. Perfect. Um, block four for five and you're good. <laughs> Like, um, but no, so, By the way, I want to jump in for a couple of seconds. Rob is not giving you technical advice on how to handle security in your environment. Don't listen to Rob. Rob will hurt you. Um, but so coming from a defensive point of view, I will say that naming a tool helps to bucketize it. So I can say that um, if it's raindrop, this is the threat actor. So they both raindrop and teardrop. Ooh. There's two different versions of it. Um, but like it helps to bucketize my time as a defender. So I will spend X amount of time on raindrop and make sure that I'm good for XYZ on raindrops. Um, but if I put a wiki article or or define what I did to block or look at it and, or decrypt it or whatever, that helps my other defenders who are on, at the sock with me or who come in after me, or if they see some variant of it that says in our in our heuristics or in virus total, um, virus total's graphing stuff uh, graph um, is amazing at this. It'll it'll do fuzzy uh, fuzzy matching on stuff. If it says this one is a lot like this other one, um, and they're both raindrop, I can go into that wiki and as a new defender to the organization or new sock analyst, and so oh. Okay, so these are the seven things I should look at. Here's how to decrypt it, or here's how how they decrypted it before. So, I agree, buzzwords aren't awesome. However, when it comes to documentation, it really helps. I think it helps on the IR perspective, but my concern is on the defense perspective, right? Because everything you said makes sense. If you have if you have an incident that you're working, having some idea of how to research the tooling that's used is very helpful. But if we're if we're looking at defense, I've seen far too many organizations that get hung up on a tool or a vulnerability or a exploit. And it seems to me it becomes myopic and it becomes an oversimplification of defending an organization. So that, that's my main concern. Now, for threat intel, for IR and doing research or trying to do IOCs in environment, sure, um, I, I would agree. But my concern is if you're listening to this, don't get caught in the hype of a specific tool. Instead, just like, kind of like what Rob said, take a step back. What are the techniques that are being utilized? Because the tools are going to change, but the actual techniques, there, there tends to be fewer techniques than there are tools. Does that make sense? So yes, isn't that how they catch serial killers? Because they have a signature. They do the same thing over and over. 
Wait, was I paying attention to the same news? <laughs> I, think, I think I got, I got weird. Um, so uh, I will say that I will say that one of the cool things that I learned um, while doing defense is that exactly what you said um, that once on a box that many threat actors, many even even me as a red teamer, I will catch myself doing the same commands the first right out of the gate, right or or mm-hmm. in a row because that's what's in my click script or that's what's in my notes, right? So um, if I, I completely agree that the the techniques are more important than the tools, but like naming naming that threat actor, and I think it was a threat actor, not the actual tool that they named. Right? They were saying raindrop is a threat actor, not a tool, or was I, I mis I misunderstood? No, they they specifically said it was malware dubbed raindrop, so they were oh, specifically okay. talking about the malware itself. Gotcha. So so that one. But yeah, you know, it's interesting how you can fingerprint people. There was a very, very, very high profile hack about 10, 11 years ago. And I remember sitting down with Ed Scotus and we were going through and looking at your own notes and seeing that it was you. No, but actually, that's not far (laughs) off because we're looking at the commands they ran. We're looking at the ports that they ran. And I remember sitting there with Ed and we're like, crap, these guys went through 504 and 560. Um, cause there's, there's just traits like a backdoor port. We use two, 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 two everywhere. Right. And then there's certain like edisms and Johnisms, And it's pretty clear that the people that launched the attack had gone through sans training because they were running a lot of the exact same commands, either that or else they were trying to implicate us. I, I don't so know. What you're saying um, is that you were, tra- you, you train bad guys. Like you train, yep, that criminals. actually, that's what, that's what you're saying. Yep. You're training criminals. So, yeah, not intentionally, right? Not intentionally. Um, I guess that's what you always fight, right? Raindrop was a conduit loading cobalt strike. So it was just like a stage one and a half, which is kind of where people are going for these. I mean, because a lot of times you get on a system, you don't need that level of, uh, you know, C2 access. So they're and and that way they don't have to put as much evasion and stuff and build it in all these other C2 frameworks. I mean, um, so having a name for it is I mean, it's definitely useful, but the technique is more important. Right. So, yep. And so I was just going to say, like, uh, I knew a forensics person, and when I would ask them questions, they were telling me that, because uh, I worked at SANS too, and so when a, an attacker would get on a box and they would forget what to do, you could see them look up the, the article. <laughs> like, oh, crap. We're, uh, and then, like, sometimes it would be a SANS article, or it would be, like, this article. It would be maybe Mubix's video on something, and you're like, oh. yeah. Because they like, wait, what's the next thing? Oh yeah, let me look. It up absolutely looked up, looked up uh, how to do something on a on a victim machine before. Now <laughs> totally I've got a question it. for you, Rob. <laughs> Have you ever been in the middle of a test or an assessment and you're like, "Damn it, I did a video on Hack Five," and you had to go and rewatch your video <laughs> to figure out how to do? It's like, what was that command again? I know I did a webcast, a video, or an article on this. I've, I've totally done that for guides that I've written for other people or stuff like that and read it all back. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that was it. And that was it. I mean, because you're looking I mean, at the end of the day, you're trying to get your cheat sheet, right? You don't need to digest all that information. It's going to come right back. But you don't remember all those commands off the top of your head. I mean, it's just so it's I, I learned early that. on in my career um, from uh, Chris Gates that your blog is your notepad. It doesn't matter if yeah. anyone else reads your blog make your blog your notepad because you're going to be somewhere 
that you're not going to be able to access your Evernote or your OneNote or whatever your note-taking thing is. And that blog is publicly available and it's super easy to access. So like that's your notepad. And I got into that habit and I've definitely used it in assessments. Yeah, so uh, absolutely. Um, the last story that I wanted to throw in is uh, this uh, DNS spook flaw. Um, basically, it's DNS mask. For those of you that don't know, DNS mask is a uh, is a lightweight network utility that'll serve up like DNS and DHCP for like home routers or small networks. And this particular article is interesting to me specifically because I, I think that there sometimes needs to be a, a larger conversation of just how jacked like home Soho routers and home security actually is because going out and talking about this particular, you know, cash poisoning vulnerability. Um, it, it's, it's interesting because the thing that you, you're going to find out is this vulnerability is not going to be fixed by the vast majority of home devices um, that are running these particular, uh, these particular um these particular like services because they're running on home users and home users just don't ever upgrade their crap. And uh, do you guys remember, what was it? The, the botnet, I think it was called Karna where the botnet actually took over uh, like hundreds of thousands of home router, like Soho router devices. And then basically did a full survey of the entire internet. I think it was the internet census of 2012 and the attacker released all of their research what were the operating system makeups what were the services that were running and it was fairly comprehensive it was like a research paper but underlying underpinning that entire thing was talking about the inherent vulnerabilities that exist in these various devices and just how wide open uh, many of these devices actually are to attack so that's why i wanted to talk about this article and you know what what are you guys doing uh for like home protection at your at your place i mean mine is easy I live out in the middle of the woods. I'm bouncing off of really bad microwave links. The attackers get on my network. There's nothing here that's interesting to them. They're like, that network is janky. Uh, but what do you all do to try to protect your own home network? Not something I'm going to post or say on a live podcast. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you can just say it's called Movix's Secret oil. Sauce. Defense it's in Depth. Secret. Defense in Depth. I have yeah. multiple layers there. That's the best I can say. Your, your, your was, network was, at home has got to be a, just like a clown house of you know, just horrors for an attacker. <laughs> I was actually thinking about this uh, last week. I was like, that'd be a good pod or a uh, good webcast, right? Like how to you know secure your home network and stuff like that. I mean, I don't know, just like a little bit deeper, more than just uh, you know the basic level, but really getting into the concepts of some of that stuff. But I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that you can do. Um, but, uh, I think the other idea too, is kind of how you scale it. Right. Cause like that, that in defense in depth is, you know, for grandma is going to be a lot different. Like, and then how do you give that to somebody else? You know, how, how do you, how, and, and that's really, I think what the issue is with all these, um, you know, home routers and stuff, they're getting devices from the cable company who has zero interest in their security and only cares about providing them, um, you know, internet service. And some of those basics are just lost on them because all they care about is whether, you know, the internet works. Um, well, let's be honest. So, many yeah, ISPs don't even care about giving us the internet service yeah. either. Yeah, so. uh, not unless you're paying more for, you know, whatever. So, but I mean, yeah, DNS is one of them. Um, just having a firewall is another one. Um, you know, that, that's like just kind of the beginning of how you would secure your network. Um, you can also, you know, work, on, also on, work on. Well, why am I getting feedback? Anyways, 
You can get the. Um, so who's going through speakers and doesn't have headphones? Ralph. This camera's I am, going crazy. But too, I don't give feedback. Anyways, I can. I use DNS over HTTP um, just because I can um, get around um, any kind of. Uh, internal DNS cache poisoning issues like the DNS spook, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be affected because I'm not using DNS mask internally. I'm having everything point out to the DNS or now, HTTP. Now, even your, even your like, uh, even like your other IOT devices, like TVs, Chromecasts, those types of devices, are you having them use DNS over HTTP too? Or are you talking specifically for like your own computers? So I, I might be, be asking too many prying questions at this point. It's like, I actually have a category for IOT devices in my network and they do not get internet access. See, and that's what I'm worried. Like, if I tried to break into your network, I'd break in and I'd be like on a TV and then I'd be (laughs) over on another network and it would be a full domain with hundreds of systems. And then it's a bunch of SCADA devices that are probably in your basement that you forgot about. That's like the Island of Misfit Toys. It's just that's how I envision Rob's network at home. Pretty much. Yeah, that's that's one of those other ones, too, that I can think of as as a red teamer that can be like extremely frustrating is network segmentation. I see this all the time. You get on these networks, they're huge, Absolutely. and there's zero segmentation. There is nothing right? there. And that can be the Achilles heel of the entire test because all I'm doing is trying to figure out how to get around a firewall rule, which is not easy. That's not like an exploit away. There's not privilege escalation firewall ways around. I have to find a host, and it's, it's a lot of work, you know? So yeah. I, you've got to pivot sometimes to many systems to get to that network site. I uh, uh, I love this topic because I was actually on a test recently in the last couple of months that um, I pulled down Bloodhound and there were so many paths like all over the place. And I couldn't get anywhere because all of the paths I couldn't actually hit uh, four for five on because of their network segmentation. You could you could only hit. Um, four for five on the domain controllers and i can't go straight to the domain controllers because i had this you know seven different paths like it was super locked down when it comes to sec- network segmentation and even if your dns um or i'm sorry dns even if your bloodhound data is uh and your ad is older like like 2003 what you have still have your krb tgt problem like yep. super ancient ad but you have great network segmentation you're gonna give attackers a super hard time if you do good at that. Like I agree with Ralph completely. That that's a game changer. It, that's that's a question. You know, that's a conversation we've been having for years. Which is why is it that your notebook computers at work are more secure than they are on their own network? Right. Like the idea that you know, like the host-based firewalls drop, everything drops, and everything's wide open because hey, hell, we're behind a firewall on the internet. What's the worst that can happen? We've just once again, we got to treat the internal network as hostile because it is hostile at any given point. And and Rob, it's like you know, you know, back in the days whenever I used to do pen testing and not just PowerPoint presentations, um, it was very rare that I would be on a network where they had every single firewall enabled on their workstation or they had segmentation, so I couldn't just jump from one segment to the other easily. I had to jump to a bunch of different hosts to do it. And I, and I don't think that people understand, like, you know, what Ralph was talking about, how much that actually frustrates an attacker. 
I, I think that once again, we get caught up on the sexy buzzword of the le- recent attack. And, you know, I have people that call me up. Um, I'm sure I'm going to have somebody call me up on Raindrop here the next week. But it, 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 we kind of lose track of those core fundamentals that we've been talking about for years. So there's actually in Windows, at least, there's a registry key that you can set, and I can paste it in the chat at some point, um, that you can say that every single network is public. No other, no other network, like it's all public. And that really is an awesome step that enterprises can do um, because all of those default public settings to block everything are there. And you can say, you can make it yeah. a lot easier by to say, allow from the domain controller or allow from this one sysadmin box or whatever. It's a way or network better, range, right? Yeah. Way better starting point than the domain automatic everything's allowed for some reason that you were bringing up so i know why we don't see this on engagements though and that's because setting it up at my own house has been a a fun experiment right like it's you know stuff that just should work it doesn't always just work and you start going down this path of you know what it could be when you give the least privilege to everything it turns almost into you know uh se linux and all this other stuff, right? Which can get like, imagine a, a Linux box. I, I just literally have nightmares about, you know, that kind of blocking when you get on a Linux box, like SE Linux. It's the same thing with network policy. It takes a while to build it and making sure stuff work. And that's why we see on these big enterprises, they don't have, and I, you know, I probably have a couple hundred devices. They have thousands and that, that's, that's why, you know, they don't do it, even though they should. So, And a lot of that goes back to poor network design over the years, right? Like if you do it right, you can say, okay, all of our servers are on these network ranges. We can create a rule that those network ranges are allowed to talk to the host. The host can't talk to each other. But most of the time when I get pushback, um, I'm like, so, okay, where are your domain controllers? It's like, well, we have one in Hong Kong. We have one here in the United States. We have another one in Italy. I'm like, great, what are the network ranges for those? And they're like, oh, it's intermixed with the endpoints. It's all a flat <laughs> network. And then you can kind of see the shame come over their eyes where they're like... <laughs> We know this sucks. Um, Here's the question: You're gonna be like, do you guys have a network diagram? That that's when as soon as you hit them with that, <laughs> they're right? always wrong. They're always wrong. It's like, what 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 is? Yeah, this? we like, have right one. Here? Or they this... send it to you, and then you start hitting stuff, and you're like, nothing works. <laughs> There's a network range here that says Windows Vista network. Is that yeah. is that real? Um, <laughs> so so we had a couple of trial network. <laughs> Yeah, it's just a trial network. It's like, oh god. <laughs> um, so, um, so we had a couple of different questions. Uh, Devin asked, uh, "What were the tools mentioned to check service principal name accounts with credentials?" Um, Daft, did you did did you actually talk about a tool to check those, or is he talking about yeah. my CISA? Barrow yeah, tool? no. The, the one I mentioned was Road Tools, um, R O A D Tools. Um, that's by Dirk Jan. It's on GitHub. Okay. Not the easiest and to then, use, just saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the tool that I talked about is at the GitHub repository for Sysagov, and it's called Sparrow. Um, and no, I haven't had a chance to play with that. And then there was somebody that said, what's that class that you mentioned about cloud pen testing stuff? Oh, that's probably mine. <laughs> um, so, so breaching the cloud is the, uh, the class that I teach. And, and you can see that week. at Wild West Hack and Fest. Yeah, it is starting <laughs> up next week. <laughs> it is. Next week. Yeah, I, I don't know. You, you're gonna have a high bar because I, I watch the Discord channel of the classes while they go on, just to see how it's going. And Joff had significant numbers of memes where people were putting hair on his head. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> Apparently, oh, his man. his 
his implant creation class turned into hair club for Joff. Yeah. Nice. So, do you get extra points if you actually ship him like a, a wig to put on, and then get like if it's an actual photo? Yeah, we 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 need to make that happen. Okay. Uh, that or a horse head, uh, one of those two. So, oh god, that's nice. Uh, <laughs> the horse head thing was where it was outside of DermyCon at like three o'clock in the yep. morning, and he was in a heated argument on the streets about something security related with some random dude wearing a horse head. And it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was bad. Classic Joff, classic Joff. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to BHIS talking about the news. Uh, Ryan, you ready to take us out, sir? Sure thing. I was happy to hit the music button. Here we go. (laughs) You're so chill right now. Look at him. Look at him. He's got the Ray Charles. There it goes. I can't even you. All right. All right, folks, let's get out of here. Thank you so much for coming, and I'll see you guys soon. John just registry. like, hey, man, I'm done. That was it. Put the hammer down. John's calling hey. me, so I'm going to go, guys. I'll see you. All right, see ya. <laughs> that was quick. <laughs>